0: Okay. Hello and welcome to Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will deep dive the field of tort law and discuss negligence theory. Beginning with a brief overview of torts, we will then move to discuss the legal elements of negligence, focusing specifically on their application in the world of sport and sport management, before ending by dissecting a fictitious scenario and answering the question, who is liable? So, if you're interested in learning more about what legal responsibilities you have as a sport manager, coach, and or athlete, then this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast. In our last podcast, we started talking a little bit about risk management, and we specifically focused on its application with the coronavirus and what's going on in the world of sports. But in doing that podcast, what I realized is that the ideas of risk management are really centered around negligence theory, which I talked about very briefly in that podcast, offering a little bit of an explanation, but not really providing much depth. So this week, what I thought we would do is really dive into negligence theory because it has such a grand application within sport. But before we do that, we really need to have a grander understanding of where negligence theory falls within legal theory in general. Which brings us to tort law. A tort, by definition, is a private or civil wrong, or injury suffered by an individual as a result of another person's conduct. A couple important words within this definition is first we have to recognize what we mean when we say it is a private or civil wrong. In law, we have two different types of lawsuits that can be filed. We have civil lawsuits and we have criminal lawsuits. A criminal lawsuit deals with the federal government or state government or local government Bringing a charge against an individual. A civil lawsuit deals with individuals bringing charges against each other. And we use the term individual loosely here because an individual can also be an organization or a group of people. So when we say that it is a civil wrong, we are dealing with individuals charging each other with violating the law and causing each other some type of harm as the result. Now that harm could be financial loss, it could be physical harm, it could be a number of different things. But when we're talking about tort law, it's important to understand that we are talking about civil lawsuits, cases that are tried between individuals to determine if that one individual was wronged by the other. Another key differentiating factor between criminal and civil is the outcome of the trial. In a criminal trial, there is oftentimes the potential that the individual that did the wrong or or harmed the government or violated the law, that they could face jail time. They might also have to pay a penalty or a fine to the government. And in some cases where we have capital punishment, there's an opportunity for that individual to be killed if they're found guilty. With a civil lawsuit, we're facing very different outcomes. We're facing an individual being charged with having to correct their wrongdoing. What do we mean by that? Oftentimes, that simply means that they have to pay the other individual money to compensate them for losses that they've suffered. Sometimes, it might not be money. Sometimes, maybe in a case of wrongful termination, it's just a matter of getting your job back. But whatever it is, we're dealing with a correction of the wrong with a civil lawsuit, which oftentimes deal with some form of monetary compensation. So when we're talking about negligence, it's important to remember that negligence falls under the grander umbrella of tort laws. And the question I oftentimes get from students then is, well, why do we need to know about these types of lawsuits? Why do we need to study torts in sports? Well, remember As a sport management professor or someone that is trying to educate individuals about the field of sport management, I'm not trying to train individuals to be lawyers. Rather, we're trying to prepare individuals to be sport managers. What does this mean? Well, we're trying to make sure that the students or the people that are interested in this field know not just how professional and collegiate teams and organizations work, But we're also trying to teach the individuals about what goes into the workings of those sport organizations. And we're trying to prepare them for the different tasks and challenges they might face. One of the big challenges you will find, regardless of what job you have within the field of sport or recreation, is risk management. Meaning... We're trying to minimize the liability that you and your company face. And one of the biggest places where you can lose money in sports is through litigation. So with that said, it's important to understand what laws affect us as sport managers and how we can go about avoiding breaking them to protect us and our company. With tort laws specifically, there's three different kind of classifications of torts. We have what we call reckless misconduct or gross negligence, we have intentional torts, and then we have unintentional torts, also known as negligence. When we're talking about gross negligence, this is when an individual intentionally fails to perform a responsibility required of them or intentionally does something that they know may cause injury to someone else. For example, imagine that there is a bike race on an open course, and by that we mean a road where we have traffic and we have bikers one of the responsibilities one of the things that we have to do as the people putting on that race is make sure that those individuals that are participating are protected from the oncoming traffic well if I just decide not to put up any signs or any warnings for the bikers and the oncoming traffic and someone gets hurt That would be a form of gross negligence. I'm intentionally not doing something. I'm not intending to cause the person harm, but I'm intentionally doing something or not doing something that has brought harm to someone else. We also have intentional torts. Here, it's the exact opposite. Here, I actually am acting in a manner which I intend to cause harm to another person. The term harm is a loose term. It doesn't have to be extreme harm, but I am intending to come into contact or to make a person fearful that they will be harmed. Generally, we call this civil assault and civil battery. Now, we put the term civil in there because, as I said at the beginning, a tort is a civil wrong. We also have criminal assault and criminal battery, which have different legal elements to it. Both gross negligence and intentional torts are important within the sport realm, they do apply, but the one aspect of torts that I want to focus on today, the one that we see affecting the sport world the most, are unintentional torts, which we also call negligence. That leads us into the bulk of our conversation today. And the starting question is, what is negligence? The legal dictionary defines negligence as the failure to use ordinary care and caution as would be expected by a prudent person for the protection of others against an unreasonably great risk of harm. Let's break down this definition because there's a lot in it. What it's saying at the beginning is that negligence is the failure to use such care as a reasonable, prudent person would under those exact same situations or under the exact same circumstances. An important point here is that with negligence, intent does not matter. What matters is if a person was harmed due to someone else. And this may come in two forms. We can have an act of omission or an act of commission. An act of omission is when someone fails to do something they should have done. For example, failure to put out a sign that says wet floor caution after you mop up a floor. That would be an act of omission. An act of commission is when someone does something they should not have done. For example, if a gym teacher tells students to run as hard as they can into a wall, that's an act of commission. They should not be telling their students to do that. Why? Because both of those actions, whether it's failure to put out a wet floor sign or telling someone to run into a wall, both of those actions can actually cause harm to another person. It doesn't matter if the gym teacher intended to harm the student. It doesn't matter if the custodian intended to harm someone by not putting up the sign. What matters is that they did something or failed to do something and that a person was harmed as a result. The second important point with this definition is this idea of what a reasonable, prudent person is. Now, This can be a hard concept to grasp sometimes, and there's whole classes in law school that focus on defining what a reasonable, prudent person is. But for the sake of our discussion today, the easiest way to think of this is to just ask how a similar person with a similar knowledge set would have acted if they were in that exact same situation. It goes slightly beyond just saying a similar person, though, because it's really a mere image of the person, meaning the person has to have the same knowledge base, the same training, the same skill sets, etc. So as we get into sport management and negligence, we're often dealing with a highly trained individual. We're considering how a reasonable, prudent person would act in a situation. We have to take into account what their background is, what their training is, what type of certifications they have. We just look at a very simple example. Let's say that a player gets hurt in a soccer game. And in the first scenario, a coach with CPR and first aid training comes onto the field to try to help. Now that coach has to act in according to their knowledge set as a reasonable, prudent person would, meaning they have to act as any other coach would that has the same background, the same training in CPR, and the same training in first aid. If in the second scenario, though, instead of the coach coming onto the field, an ambulance with an individual who's trained as a first responder comes onto the field to help, they are going to act differently. They have a different level of training. And so the standard of what a reasonable, prudent person is for the first responder is going to be different than what it is for the coach. Both of them have to do what's in their skill set. So a coach with training in CPR and first aid, if a soccer player breaks their leg, they're going to first monitor the ABCs of the individual. They're going to monitor the airway, breathing, and circulation. They're going to assess the situation, and they're going to call an ambulance and not move the player. When the ambulance gets there, they're going to do similar things to monitoring the ABCs, but because their level of training is greater, they're going to move that player, put them in the ambulance, and take them to the hospital. It's the same setting, the same injury, but because of the background of the person, what standard of care that they owe to the individual who's hurt is slightly different. When we're considering negligence, when we're considering what type of care a person should have taken in a given situation... We have to consider what the normal person with the exact same background would do in that setting, which that can be somewhat difficult. But as we continue our conversation today, we'll point out some of the things that an ordinary person with a certain level of training should do in these specific situations. Now that we have an understanding of what negligence is, the failure to use ordinary care and caution that would be expected by a prudent person for the protection of others against an unreasonably great risk of harm, and now that we understand the idea of an act of omission versus commission, and we understand a little bit better what a reasonable prudent person is, we then need to move to breaking down the legal theory that goes into negligence. This is how we always teach law. We look at what are the legal elements that have to exist in order for a violation of the law to have taken place. With negligence, there are four legal elements. There's the duty of care owed, breach of duty, causation, and damages. Let's begin with the first one, the duty of care owed by the defendant. Generally speaking, this refers to a responsibility we have towards each other to protect each other from unreasonable risks of injury. Now, I wanna point out something with this last part of the definition, an unreasonable risk of injury. In sports, especially contact sports, we know that there is a risk of injury. If I play football, there's a chance that I'm going to get tackled and potentially break a bone. That's a reasonable risk. In football, however, it's not reasonable for me expected to be punched in the face by another player. That goes above and beyond what is a part of the game. So we need to understand what risks are reasonable within a sport and what risks are not. This gets a little bit complicated when we have contact sports like soccer, like hockey, like football, where contact is a part of the sport and that contact can cause harm. But the contact is very clearly laid out as to what is acceptable and what is not. So the responsibility or the duty arises from a relationship that exists between the people. There are two different types of relationships that exist. There's what we call inherent relationships and voluntary relationships. An inherent relationship is a relationship that exists as a result of the title that a person has. Because it is inherent, it is always there. So for example, if I have the title of a coach, I have an inherent relationship with my athletes. If I have a title of a referee, I have an inherent relationship with the athletes and the coaches. If I have the title of boss, I have an inherent relationship with my employees. If I have the title of doctor, I have an inherent relationship with my patients. So the title... Of the person helps us define that there is a relationship between the actors, and it helps us define what duties one actor owes towards the other. In other words, it helps lay out how a person should act and what they should do to make sure that there's no unforeseen harm that befalls the other person. The idea of voluntary relationships is a little bit more complicated. In these relationships, it's the exact opposite. The relationship is not always there because the people have no link or connection to one another. However, an individual can choose to establish a relationship and create a connection with the other person. Once they make their choice, then they have to act as a prudent person would to protect the other person from those same unreasonable risks of injury. Let's look at an example to try to really drive home the difference between these two types of relationships. Imagine you're at the pool for a day of fun with your friends. You're just there working on your tan, you're relaxing, you're maybe swimming a little bit. When all of a sudden you hear a little kid screaming and you look up, And you see that he is drowning last summer you were certified as a lifeguard the question that i have is do you as a person that's just there with your friends do you have to jump in and try to save the kid in other words do you owe the kid a duty do you have a relationship with him no why? Because you have no pre-existing con- connection to the individual. You're just there hanging out with your friends and trying to relax. However, if you do decide to jump in, now you have a voluntary relationship. You have chosen on your own accord to create a relationship with that person who is drowning. And as a result of you voluntarily acting, you now have to act as someone who has that first aid training that someone that has that lifeguard training if we switch it a little bit what if you were the lifeguard at that pool and you see that same kid drowning as a lifeguard you have an inherent relationship you have a relationship that exists because of the title that you hold you are a lifeguard they're a swimmer meaning you have a duty based off of your relationship to act. You have a duty to jump in and act as a reasonable, prudent person would. So two different people in that same situation, one of them, the lifeguard, has an inherent relationship with the swimmer. They have to act. If they choose not to act, it's an act of omission and they're negligent. You, as a person who's just there having fun, you don't have to do anything. But if you choose to do something, Then you have a voluntary relationship with the swimmer and you owe them that same duty. You owe them that same level of care that a reasonable, prudent person would have. So in sports, we are faced with both situations. We are faced with situations where individuals have an inherent relationship and that's oftentimes where we focus, but we're also faced with individuals who choose to establish a relationship and thus they have duties as well. So now that we have at least a little bit of understanding of the idea of how relationships are established either through voluntary means or relationships that are always there and are thus inherent, we need to then move to look at some of the inherent relationships in sport management and the duties that are owed as a result of those. One of the most talked about forms of relationships are the relationships between participants in an activity. We can call these athlete-athlete relationships or participant-participant relationships. Participants, they have a duty or responsibility to act as a reasonable person would in the game and follow the safety rules. In sport, we have rules that guide what is okay and what's not okay. In soccer, for example, it is not okay to kick someone in the head. That is an extreme. It is something that can be so uh, egregious that you can get kicked out of the game for it. In basketball, yes, you might be elbowed, but to get a fierce elbow to the head, that now goes beyond what the safety rules are and so you can be held liable. Yes, injuries are a part of the game, but the important distinction that's established here is that only the foreseeable injuries are part of the game. Getting kicked in the leg while I'm going into a tackle in soccer, that is foreseeable. Getting kicked in the leg as I'm standing there with no one else around me, that is not foreseeable. It is not a part of the safety rules. And it's egregious to the point where if an individual does it, they have violated the duty that they are owed. But participant liability isn't the only case that we see in sports. It's something that we might have to deal with as future sport managers or sport managers, but more often than not, we are faced with a duty that is owed as a result of being an employee in overseeing sport participants. We call this a duty to supervise. We have a duty as employees or as people who are overseeing sport participants to do six specific things within this duty to supervise. We have a duty to plan. We have a duty to instruct, warn, provide a safe environment, evaluate the physical and mental well-being, and provide emergency care. Now, each of these is pretty straightforward. As a a part of planning, we have to have a systematic procedure in place and developed to document each component of who's playing, what they're going to be doing, where they're going to be doing it, when they're going to be doing it, and why they're going to be doing that activity. So we can't just roll into a practice if I'm a coach and make stuff up on the spot, move stuff around all over. We have to have a plan in place to make sure that we are offering protections to the individual. We also have a duty to instruct. In other words, we have to teach the students or we have to teach the athletes not only how to play and perform the skills that are required of the sport or the game, But we also have to instruct them of the rules of the game so they know what the safety rules are so that that way they can follow them and they're not harming other players. With this, I always go and talk about football. Football, I have a duty as a coach, as a supervisor of kids who are playing football to instruct them on the proper way to tackle someone. If I'm not instructing them properly, if I'm not telling them the correct way to tackle, they could seriously hurt themselves or someone else. If they're tackling in a way that breaks the traditional rules of your use your face mask or, or your head up. And try to tackle someone in the chest. If Let's say they're launching themselves and trying to hit someone with the crown of their helmet and they hurt someone and I haven't instructed them on how to properly tackle. Then I am the one that is liable. I am the one that has breached my duty and I am the one that's potentially going to be charged or brought up with a civil lawsuit claiming negligence. With a duty to warn, you have to make sure that the participants are warned of any known risk of the sport. So let's say someone's rock climbing. What are the known risks of rock climbing? There's a chance that you could fall. There's a chance you could break a bone. You could sprain an ankle. You could hit your head on the rock. They have to know what the risks are so that way they can make the decision of if they want to participate or not. You have to provide a safe environment. This includes inspecting the playing area, either the court or the field or the pool, making sure that any unsafe areas you're not using or if there is an unsafe area you can't get around, that you're properly warning the individuals of that area. So if I'm conducting a soccer practice and I see that there's a big hole in the middle of the field, going and putting a cone in that, field, in that hole to alert the players of it, or moving where we're practicing to make sure we're not going over that specific area because that unsafe environment could potentially cause harm to someone else. We have to evaluate the physical and mental well-being of our participants. We have to make sure that they don't have any pre-existing injuries that could be exacerbated by participating in the sport. Now, oftentimes we defer that to a medical professional where we ask a trainer or we ask a doctor to clear the athlete. But if an individual is injured in the course of participating, I need to fully inspect them and make sure that they're physically able to continue before I just throw them back in, or else I can be held liable for what's going on. And then if someone were to get injured, I have the duty as part of this duty of supervision to provide emergency care within my skill set. So if I'm trained in first aid and CPR, I need to provide emergency care up to that level of my training. If I don't have that training, my what I am going to do is going to vary. But as part of supervision, we have these six duties. The last aspect that I want to hit on for duties is what about the management? We've hit on the participants in sports. We've hit on the individuals who oversee the participants. What about the management? Here, a lot of the duties are very similar to those of the employee, the individual that's directly overseeing here they have that same duty to supervise though their supervision is slightly different they have more of a general supervision rather than specific meaning they don't have to provide a constant and continuous supervision over the activity but rather they need to look over the entire facility and the entire activity as everything is going on with that they also have to make sure that the environment is safe and pro- and provide proper medical assistance though again maybe not directly They might instead of themselves being on the field to provide someone first aid and CPR, they might make sure that there is an ambulance at the game or the contest to make sure if someone is hurt that you have the proper medical people there. They also have a duty to hire qualified personnel to make sure that the people that they are hiring and putting over these sporting activities that they know what they're doing, that they know the proper way to teach an athlete, that they have experience dealing with athletes or, or individuals of that age range to make sure that they are going to act in accordance with what their legal responsibilities are. Because if they don't do that, they have something called vicarious liability, where the manager or the administrator can actually be charged with being liable for the actions of people that they have control over so if a coach were to for example not provide proper medical care and I as the administrator and the person that hired that individual and I never asked what their medical care background was whether they were certified in CPR and first aid or anything along those lines because I have failed to hire someone that is qualified And as a result, that an individual was hurt, I can be held liable for that individual, for that coach. I can also be held liable for the actions of the fans or the players in a contest. To recap this first element of negligence, this thing that we have to have in order for negligence lawsuit to move forward, we have to have a duty of care owed by the defendant. The duty that is owed is based off of the relationship between the individuals. It can either be an inherent relationship that is linked to the title of the individuals or a voluntary relationship in which one individual chooses to act legally we have very specific requirements of what an individual should and should not do within that relationship. We talked about participants following the rules of the game. We talked about people overseeing the participants have a duty to supervise them in the correct way. Then we talked about the manager who's over the employee They have a duty to make sure that they're hiring qualified personnel and protecting or providing a safe environment for the participant and if they don't they can be held liable for the actions of their coach the players or if they fail to do something themselves but we need more than just this existence of this duty that's owed between these two the second element of negligence is that there has to be a breach of that duty so the first element Lays out the connection between the two actors and what responsibilities are owed. The second element looks at whether one individual failed to do something that they should have done or if they did something that they should not have done. To do this, there's a three-part process. We first have to assess the risk of what caused the injuries. As we mentioned before, is the risk inherent to the activity or is the risk something that is unforeseeable? Generally speaking with inherent risks, this is a risk that if we removed, then it would alter the nature of the activity. So as I said, there is a risk in football that I could get hurt. But if I remove tackling, which would take away a lot of that risk, it would fundamentally alter the sport of football. So because removing tackling will fundamentally alter the sport, then tackling or being injured by being correctly tackled is an inherent risk of the activity. If what we're talking about is an inherent risk of the activity, then the individual is not liable for it. So that's the very first thing we have to do in trying to determine if a breach of duty occurred. We then have to assess what reasonable care should have occurred. In other words, what would a reasonable imprudent person do in that situation? So if a coach fails to go and look at the environment, the playing field before a contest... And then an individual gets injured. As a result of that, we would go and we would say, is there a duty owed? Yes. There is an inherent relationship between the coach and the player. Part of their duty is to inspect the playing field and make sure it's safe. The next question would be, well, did the coach breach that duty? Well, we go and would say, is it a, a, an inherent risk of soccer that there's going to be a hole in the middle of the field? No, we don't expect that. So the risk isn't just part of the activity. We then go to the second question. What would a reasonable coach do in that situation? Well, a reasonable coach would have inspected the playing field. This coach did not. So then we can go on and say that that violates the duty that they owe. They breached their duty. They failed to uphold their responsibilities. The third aspect of this breach of duty is we need to assess what is foreseeable in the game and what is not. Would an ordinary person have known if they did the act or played the game or sport They could be injured by it. So if we're trying to assess if a breach of duty occurred, we look at three things. We look at what risk caused the injury. If the risk is inherent as a part of the activity, and if it is a foreseeable part of the activity, then there is no breach of duty. We also need to look at what the individual should have done. What would a reasonable and prudent person have done in the same situation? If a reasonable person would have acted the exact same way, then there is no breach of duty. If a reasonable person would have done something different, then we do have a breach of duty. And we then go on to the third element of negligence, which is causation. We look at did the breach of duty cause the individual to be hurt or did it cause some form of damages? This is one of the easier elements to understand because we're looking at is there a direct link between what the individual did or didn't do and the injury. The only little caveat here that gets to be a little bit challenging is the idea of something called an intervening act. This is when a negligent act is followed by another unforeseeable act by another party. And the second negligence act can be deemed to be the cause of the injury, thereby intervening and adverting liability from one actor to another. There's a couple of things that are important with intervening acts. They must be independent, meaning the first act can't cause the second act, and the second act then cause the injury. They have to be two completely separate acts. Along the same lines, the intervening act must itself be capable of creating the injury that's in question, and... It must not be foreseeable by the party committing the first act. Let's look at an example to really drive home this point. As a coach, I have a duty to supervise and provide a safe environment. We've already established that. So during a soccer practice, I see lightning off in the distance. Now school policy says that if I see lightning, I have to get my players off the field immediately. And then I have to wait 30 minutes from the last lightning that I see in order to resume practice or games. I decide to ignore the policy, though, and keep practice going. Ten minutes later, a player gets hit by a random vehicle that drives onto the field. This player, as a result of the vehicle driving onto the field, breaks his leg, and now the parents try to sue me, saying that I was negligent because I breached my duty to provide a safe environment. Will they win the case? We need to look at, was there a duty? Yes, I have a duty to provide a safe environment. Did I breach that duty? Yes, I did breach that duty because I didn't follow school policy when I saw lightning and remove the players from the field. But when we look at that third element, did my breach of duty cause the damages? This is where we can ask if there was an intervening act. Yes, I didn't remove the kids from the playing field. But my act of not removing the kids from the playing field because of lightning did not cause that car to drive onto the field and hit the kid. The car driving onto the field and hitting the kid is an intervening act. It is completely independent of my action. There's no link between the lightning and the car. It's capable in and of itself of causing the injury. And there's no way that I could foresee a car driving onto the field at that point in time. So because of these circumstances, I could make an argument that there was an intervening act and that I did not cause the injury by my breach of duty, but that the car itself caused the injury. If that is the case and I win that argument, then I am not held liable, even though I had a duty and even though I breached that duty. There was no injury that was caused as a result of my action there was another action that occurred completely independent which caused the injury so we have to have causation and the causation has to link directly my breach to the damages which then brings us to the fourth element of negligence there has to be some type of damage this is pretty straightforward generally speaking we think of a damage as a form of injury such as a broken leg But we don't have to have physical damage like a broken bone or a concussion. We can also have something else. We can have something like a bruise or a cut. We can have emotional damage that could be caused as a result of what I'm doing. The term damages is pretty wide scale. The size and the extent of the damages do not affect whether or not I was negligent. It doesn't matter if the individual breaks a leg or they have a bruise. What matters is if they have a damage. Now, the size of the damage could affect the amount of money that could be potentially rewarded at the end of a lawsuit. Because the point of civil lawsuits, as I said at the very beginning of this, the point of a civil lawsuit is to correct the wrongdoing. We can correct the wrongdoing in large part in these cases by having an individual, the individual that is guilty, the defendant, by having them pay money to the individual that they harmed, the plaintiff. In this regard, there's two types of damages that the courts can award. They can award what's called compensatory damages. This is money that is paid to compensate the plaintiff for the injuries that they suffered. This covers both past and present losses and can include prospective future losses. We generally see things like medical expenses. So if I break a leg and I have to go to the hospital, the hospital bills or the expense of having that broken leg can be part of my compensatory damages. We can see lost earnings. If I break my leg and I can't go to work as a result of that, that money that I'm losing, can be a part of the compensatory damages that I seek. Pain and suffering can be a part of the compensatory damages, though pain and suffering is normally limited uh, depending on the state, on how much you can actually get for that. And you can also try to go for impaired future earnings. Those are all considered compensatory damages, and that's generally what we see awarded if an individual is found to be negligent. You can also award punitive damages, though. Punitive damages are awarded to the injured party to punish... The plaintiff for outrageous, reckless, willful, and warranted conduct. They're trying to make sure that the individual understands that their conduct was so bad that it caused harm to someone else, and it's trying to keep them from harming other individuals in a similar way going forward. So that lays out the four elements that we need to have in place for negligence to be present. You need to have a duty, which is based off the inherent or voluntary relationship between the parties. You need to have a breach of that duty. You need to have that breach of the duty cause some form of damages. What we talked about in last week's podcast was what do I put in place to try to mitigate or reduce the chance of those negligence claims coming against me? And we talked about risk management strategies. You can go back and listen to that podcast to understand that a little bit more. But hopefully today what we've done is clearly kind of laid out one of the most common seen lawsuits within sport, the idea of an individual organization being negligent and causing damages based off that negligence to another actor. Organizations in sport and rec management need to account for this by trying to mitigate or lessen the likelihood that any of these scenarios could happen. Education is a great starting point of first understanding what you need to do within different situations, what duty you owe the individuals you interact with as a business. So hopefully this helped you at least start to understand those interactions, those relationships, both inherent and voluntary a bit more, and also understand the duties that are owed within each of those relationships that we talked about. If you have any questions about anything that we talked about today... Whether it's torts or negligence or their application within sport, please feel free to contact us on Instagram at The Sport Professor. Follow us on iTunes and Spotify so you can get the most up to date podcasts sent to you every week. Until next time, though, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast.